listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Before we jump in, uh, back into the book of Daniel, a few announcements for us this morning. Uh, There are several ways that you can give. The first one is by giving uh, in the boxes out here in the atrium. You can give online at southpoint.org. You can text any amount to 84321. And I would encourage y'all who are giving um, so far this year, that giving is, um, is up and to the right from what it was last year. And so thank you for your faithfulness in that. It allows us, like Caleb just prayed, to uh, provide opportunity for myself, for Chris, for other pastors here in McDonough down in Locust Grove to be able to read and study the Word of God. This past week has been pretty crazy. Um, Just besides studying the Word of God, it frees us up to be able to deal with a variety of issues throughout the week, hopefully uh, making us a more spiritually formed people, uh, a people who are pursuing the heart of God. And so thank, thank you for your faithfulness in that. It also helps us to uh, meet the needs of those who are in other cities, states, overseas, uh, who are spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. So just like we prayed for the Lewises, we support them with, with several hundred dollars every single month. And so thank you for giving faithfully for the, for the sake of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Uh, secondly, if you want to know a little more about our finances, if you are a partner today, we have our partners meeting and we have that once a quarter. And so if that's a surprise to you or news to you, if you didn't bring any food, that's okay. I would still love for you to join with us immediately following our gathering. And it's going to be right back there in the gym. Uh, and so our hope is that it's not going to take an incredibly long time. We have a few things to discuss, some really important things. But if you weren't making plans to join us and you are a partner here at South Point or in that partnership process, I would encourage you to stay so we can celebrate what God is doing in our midst uh, and talk about some specific needs, some areas um, of concern for us as a church, but also cast a vision for what we, what we hope that God is doing in and through us as his people even in the coming months. And so I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, If you're new here and uh, you're like, man, I was hoping to go to lunch with somebody today. Um, Today's not the greatest day in the world for that, just because we're gonna be eating lunch here. But next week, we would love to have lunch with you. Uh, The first step though, in, uh, in engaging with us, if you're new here to South Point, is grabbing a Connect card, filling that out, You can take it to the next steps table there in the atrium. We'll send you an email, a card this week, and just say thanks again for joining with us to worship this morning. Um, Next Sunday, we have our first steps class. And so we have that the first Sunday of every single month. And so it'll be at 930 right here in this flex room right off the atrium. And so if you're interested in partnering with us as a church or simply just want to ask questions or see what that looks like to be part of South Point, that's the place for you to go next. And so you can register for that class at southpoint.org. And uh, we'd love to see you next Sunday. Since today is family worship, what I like to do is begin with a kid's story. And so if you are a kid, uh, you can come on down. We're actually going to read a story from uh, this, the biggest story, Bible storybook. And we've gone through a few different stories on the book of Daniel. Today, we're going to be looking at the second half of Daniel, which is all apocalyptic. And um, so that the children don't 
from the onset, um, you know, soil their pants based on the imagery we may see there. We're actually going to do a story back on Daniel chapter 6. And so as I begin preaching in just a few minutes, um, we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 7. But maybe this is a little refresher, a little recap of Daniel there in the lion's den. So chapter 6, this is for y'all. Y'all ready? Okay, cool. All right, this story is called The Miraculous Cat Nap. All right, y'all ready? All right, y'all listen as I read. Here we go. After Nebuchadnezzar died, his grandson, Belshazzar, everybody say Belshazzar. Belshazzar. Well, that was close, but not close at all. He reigned in his place as king in Babylon. But after Belshazzar was killed, a new line of kings and a new kingdom rose to power, as Daniel predicted. Babylon was overtaken by the Medes and the Persians, and Darius was the new king. Y'all say Darius. Good. Darius organized his reign with various rulers over different parts of the kingdom. Daniel was one of those key rulers. Some of the other rulers were jealous because the the king thought so highly of Daniel. They tried to find a reason to get Daniel in trouble. But Daniel was so careful and so faithful that they found no complaints to bring before the king. Instead, they got busy on a nasty plan. The rulers flattered the king. You are an amazing king, they said. You ought to make a law that forbids your subjects to worship any god but you. And if they worship another god, you should throw them into the den of lions. The king must have thought himself pretty important because he thought that was a swell idea. He signed the document and it became the law of the land. Now, Daniel had been a good helper for Darius, but he knew Darius was no God. Daniel worshiped the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and prayed to the Lord how many times a day? Three. Good work. Three times a day. Just because the new law said everyone needed to pray to Darius didn't mean Daniel was going to stop praying to the real God. When the jealous leader saw Daniel praying to the Lord, just like they knew he would, they hurried to the palace to tattle to the king. Anybody have a sibling who likes to tattle? Yeah, I had three of them. Yeah. He never meant for his friends to be fed to the lions, but he had signed the decree. And now he didn't dare change it. As Daniel was cast into the den, the king cried out, May your God deliver you! The den was covered with a stone and sealed with the king's own ring. Darius returned to his home a sad man. He didn't sleep all night. As soon as it was morning, the king got up and ran to the lion's den. He yelled out in a panic like your mom might if she saw you riding your bike in the middle of the road. Darius said, oh, Daniel, has your God kept you safe from the lions? I bet the king was nervous about what he would hear next. Would it be the voice of Daniel or the roar of a well-fed lion? I'm okay, Daniel replied. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. I am innocent before God and have done nothing to harm you, O king. The king was glad. He ordered Daniel to be set free and commanded the wicked men and their families to be cast into the den of lions. Before they hit the ground, the sleeping lions woke up and did their worst. 
Then King Darius signed a new decree calling on all the people to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, the God who performs mighty signs and is mighty to save. Darius saw firsthand that the true God could do what the king of the Medes and the Persians could not do. The, the end. All right, good job. Y'all go back and see your folks. What's up, dude? Oh, nice. That's cool. That's my, that's my middle name. That's why we're preaching it. So half of that's true. That is my middle name. Okay, so as we step into the second half of Daniel, if you've read ahead, and I hope you have, you'll see that it's a little bit different than the first half of Daniel. This is what we call prophetic literature. And we'll speak a little more about that in just a moment just to clarify some terms but here's when we look at the Bible, and, and just so you know, and, and Caleb prayed this a minute ago, but here's what we like to do as a church is we like to sit under the authority of God's word. And not just the authorities that we like under here. We don't just pick and choose the ones that we want to submit to, but all of it. And some of that includes things that we may not completely understand. And that's okay. 25% of this word is actually prophecy. For every prophecy, for every one prophecy about the first coming of Jesus, there are eight prophecies about Christ's second return. That's a lot. And so as we look at that, we must understand this is important for us to talk about. We need to be talking about, we, we speak of the first coming of Christ so much, and we should be talking about the second coming of Christ. Okay, so by show of hands, so we can kind of know where we stand, how many of y'all come from a mostly Baptistic, a Baptist background? Show of hands. Okay, cool. How many of y'all come from a primarily Methodist or Episcopalian background? Got a few over here. Okay. How many of y'all uh, come from, and you can raise two hands, come from a charismatic or Pentecostal background? Okay, two, come on. Hallelujah. Yeah, that's right. How many of y'all would say you come from a Presbyterian background? That's right. Y'all don't raise hands. So um, don't worry about it. Anybody here from a Catholic background? Okay. And how about just a completely unchurched background? Yeah, awesome. Man, so... Sometimes as a church, people are like, man, uh, what's y'all's denomination? Who are y'all affiliated with? And usually my first question to them is, who do you want us to be affiliated with? <laughs> um, uh, not really, but there's, um, we, we've kind of coined this phrase a little bit, but it's almost like we're presbabdicostal. And so what that means is we are going to have potlucks and it's going to be awesome, okay? So uh, we're gonna get really excited about it. So that's kind of us. Again, we sit under the authority of God, but we have to understand that as we talk about end times, as we talk about prophecy, eschatology, we all come into that based on our backgrounds a lot of times with some preconceived notion of what we believe. And what that means is as we interact with the teaching and uh, these observations about Christ's first coming and especially his second coming, we're going to have an emotional, a spiritual, maybe even for some of us, uh, a physical reaction to that. A lot of times people are like, I mean, especially when, when churches do polls, we've done this before. Hey, what would you love for us to teach on? Number one response, anybody wanna guess what it is? Revelation, that's right. And don't call it Revelations, okay? The book is called Revelation. So it's like Revelation. But what happens a lot of times is once you start kind of tiptoeing into that water, people get mad. 
People may walk out. They may walk out of your church and never come back in. They may stop giving. Whatever that is, it is a device used by Satan to divide his people. The purpose of the entire word of God, which includes a good majority, 25% of it is prophecy, is for us to understand better the love and character and nature and work of God through all of human history, past, present, and future. And so I would plead with you not to let this divide us. There, there are some, and we often uh, make a, a caricature of these people, they wake up almost every single morning uh, with Daniel 7 through 12 and the book of Revelation in one hand, and then like the New York Times in the other. And they're trying to figure out, okay, so how do these two things compare? Which world leader is actually the Antichrist? Well, Ronald Reagan, every single, his first, middle, and last name, this wasn't in my notes, I'm, I need to stop. Uh, but like all of his names, they had like six letters, six, six, six. Oh my gosh, you know? And so we started trying to figure out, well, you can't spell Jerusalem without USA, you know, like all these different things. And we started going down this path and we're like, is COVID one of the bowls of wrath? Is that really it? I don't know, I don't think so. But we're like, oh man, those people, like it's a little, like we can, they can kind of go down that kind of kooky path. You know what I'm saying? And so oftentimes what we run to is I'm not going to consider it or think about it at all. And I'll be honest, most of my life, that's where I've been. Is I, I kind of want to avoid this. I don't really know what to do with it because I don't want to be wrong. Anybody else in that camp? Yeah, does anybody like being wrong? No, no, but we don't like being wrong. <laughs> And so I don't like being wrong. And so for most of my life, I've avoided some of those things. But I, so I would plead with you this morning, I'd make the case that I think that we actually, most of us are not gonna be in this, hey, let's try to figure out all the details of what's happening. Most of us are in the camp of, we haven't really thought about this nearly as much as we should have. So I'm really excited about the second half of Daniel. I want us to actually begin though, in Matthew chapter 24 and see what Jesus says about the end time. So Matthew 24 we see here beginning in verse number three, Jesus speaking to us. I'm gonna, is it, everybody okay if we read a decent bit of scripture this morning? Everybody cool with that? Okay. He says this, and this is talking about Jesus. And this will be up on the screen if you don't have uh, a Bible with you. But he says, and he sat on the Mount of Olives. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? So this is no new request that we have. They've been asking this ever since Jesus mentioned coming back again. Verse four, and Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. These are simply the beginning. I actually read a, a sermon this past week by Jonathan Edwards as he was talking about the end times. And this was three, 400 years ago. Uh, and he's talking about all the wars and rumors of wars that had happened really from the Reformation, middle of the 16th, beginning of the 16th century, all the way through the middle of the 1700s. And he's like, man, look at all these things that are happening to the church. And I'm like, man, if you could just pick up with Jonathan Edwards and go till today, the same thing happens. This is just the beginning of the end, Jesus continues. 
Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, verse 14, key verse here. Notice what he says. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So they come to Jesus and they're, 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 they're saying, Jesus, when is all this going to happen? What's it going to look like? Jesus, show us your chart. <laughs> like, do you, have a flannel, do you have a flannel graph you can bring out for us? Do you have like a, a PowerPoint you can show us? Like, show us when this is going to happen. He says, here's when this is going to happen. When the good news of the gospel is spread to the ends of the earth. Because generation after generation after generation who every single one has gone before us has seen wars and rumors of wars and famine and hatred and a lack of love and a lack of unity. Many generations have seen all of these things, yet here we are. The end has not yet arrived. And so verse 14 is the key verse. In fact, if you go and look at First and Second Thessalonians, they were thinking that Jesus was about to come back. That's Paul addresses the church there in Thessalonica with, hey, even if he is about to come back, here's how you should be living. And so the church has been hoping and assuming and looking forward to his second return happening imminently, happening soon, right around the corner. It still hasn't, but it is going to really soon. But as we look here at verse number 14, we know that the end is going to be when the gospel reaches the ends of the earth. When disciples are made from every single nation. This sounds really familiar to what? Acts 1.8, the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples. Friends, here's what I want us to see as we step into the second half of Daniel. Is that the mission of God has not changed. The mission of God has not changed. We are to be reaching the ends of the earth with the good news of the gospel until our end or until Jesus Christ returns. So I want us to jump over to Daniel. We'll be looking at these first 14 verses uh, here in Daniel chapter seven. We'll be walking fairly slowly through these. Um, and just to recap, we've seen that there were exiles who were captured. They were taken from Jerusalem, made to walk 700 miles over to Babylon. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, uh, their uh, Babylonian names, they were some of the smarter guys who were made to walk over there. They were made uh, to be servants in the king's palace. Their family was taken away from them. Their rights were taken away from them. Their ability to eat meat, they gave that up. They were probably castrated since they were brought under the king's rule. He didn't want this huge population of Jews. And so then we've seen those first six chapters, God continuing to preserve his people through the faithfulness of Daniel and his three friends. So then we finished in chapter six, with Daniel there in the lion's den, continuing to be faithful, continuing to pray. And even at that point, Daniel is 80 years old, probably between 80 and 90 years old. So that's all happening, Old Testament. So if we look at 
meta-narrative of scripture. We have God creating Adam and Eve back in Genesis. We have him declaring, I want you to be my people to, to Abraham. He says, you're gonna be the father of many nations. We have the people of Israel who fall into idolatry, then come back to God, then they fall into idolatry and they go into Egypt and they, they're made slaves and they, they're made exiles and they come back to God. And it's, it's this continual cycle all throughout the Old Testament until we get to Jesus Christ. And so this is happening about five or 600 years before Jesus hits the scene. All of the book of Daniel is happening here, okay? So that's where we're picking up. We're moving, though, from Daniel chapters 1 through 6 to Daniel chapters 7 through 12, and we're moving from narrative. So we have the story of what's happening, these, these small vignettes, and we have dates for all of those all throughout the the first half of Daniel, and we're moving into apocalyptic literature. So there's a real clean, hard break. So before this, it's, we're moving from storytelling. Hey, let me tell you a story about how these things happened. And we're moving into this sci-fi movie. <laughs> like we're, move, we're, we're moving into, even when Caleb was reading that, some of y'all were like, I, I think I came to the, well, I don't know what this is. <laughs> like, how do we get to Jesus? Like, can't we have some, some story of like somebody getting healed or something? Like, this, I, I don't know what's going on here. This is almost like a sci-fi movie. So before we, we step too far into that, I want to define a couple of terms. The first one is this. Maybe you hear these things thrown around, but eschatology. Everybody say eschatology. Okay, so when we talk about eschatology, we know that if we put the ology on the end of any word, it's the study of something. And so this is the study of the eschaton, which is the study of the end. Here we see a lot of metaphors. So a metaphor may be, uh, sorry, I know some of y'all are like, like geeking out over this, okay? The ones of y'all who um, people don't typically call to hang out, but some of y'all, oh man, I love this kind of stuff, okay? So a metaphor may be, man, he has got, he's got a heart of stone, now, is that true? Is his heart really made of stone? No. You're using this picture. Sometimes you're like, man, my house is just a zoo. You don't literally have animals running around. So we got that metaphor. It is this. Except for, by the way, if I say my wife is a princess, that's not a metaphor. That's true, okay? We have metaphors. We have symbolism. We have figurative language. These, we have these pictures, these dramatic tellings. The other thing I want us to, to discuss that you're going to hear a lot of, I've even said this word several times this morning, is this is apocalyptic literature. Everybody say apocalyptic. Nice. That's, that's really fun to say. Am I right, kids? Apocalyptic? Okay. Uh, literally, apocalyptic means revelation, which is why we have a book called Revelation. Or and maybe even a, a better, more stringent definition of apocalyptic is unveiling. It means to pull the curtain back on the unseen world, and we're able to see how the unseen world has an impact on the world that we do see. So that's kind of scary. So in the beginning of Daniel, we talked about this spirit of Babylon that has existed since the beginning of the world, since the fall of Satan, since the fall of mankind. And now we're still maintaining that same spirit of Babylon that is active and permeating the world that we currently see. And we're going to continue to see his power. We're going to use these terms, the spirit of Babylon and also the spirit of Antichrist. Same basic idea. There's an unseen world and it is interacting with the seen world. And so some of these terms that we're going to be using in here as we look at the second half, we're going to be shifting between the seen realm and the unseen realm. There's going to be tons of metaphors. 
similar metaphors are similes. So if he says this is like something or this was as something, that's a simile. He's saying it's not literally this. This is figurative language. Last thing, then we'll jump in. Uh, Many of the things that we're going to discuss here in Daniel, many of them we would put in an open hand. Okay? So we have different theological, different doctrines, different theological bents and perspectives. Some of those are open-handed issues. Okay? Um, They're not necessary for salvation. There are some closed-handed issues. Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. The word of God is authoritative. The word of God is without error. The word of God is all-powerful. The Trinity is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ literally died and was raised back to life. Those are close-handed issues. If you disagree with some of those things, it's gonna, those things is what we would put in the category of heresy. Then we would say, it is, you cannot believe something else besides these things and believe that the word of God is true and have a relationship with the one who wrote this book. So those are closed-handed issues. We're not going to give, we're not going to bend, we're not going to break on that. And any biblical true church, by the way, visible church that we see around us, any true church is going to hold those things sure in a closed hand. Open-handed issues, those would be something like, can women be deacons or not? Yeah, different, different guys have different perspectives on that. It, are we going to be ah-mill, pre-mill, pre-trib, post-trib? Is there a rapture? Ah, man, we got some verses over here, but it's hard to say. So we can keep these with an open hand. Uh, is it okay to wear certain things? Is it okay to meet on Sundays? Do we have to meet at 1030? Like those kinds of things are open-handed issues. We're okay with modes of baptism across the board. Open-handed issues, Okay. We could break that down into primary, ter- you know, secondary, tertiary issues and break those down even more. We're not going to do that. Just know that as we look really at the second half of Daniel, many of these things in here are open-handed issues. So if I say, this is what this seems to be, I'm not trying to like waffle and say, I don't know who Jesus is. Okay, closed-handed. Got it? I'm also not going to say, this is when Jesus is coming back. Good? We're not going to make these closed-handed issues. If you're good with that, say, yes. All right. That's your consent. So Daniel chapter one, sorry, Daniel chapter seven, verse number one. We see here, and since Caleb already read this passage all the way through, I wanna walk slowly through these verses and point out a few things. And at the end, three things for us to walk away with quickly. Chapter seven, verse number one. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed, Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Okay, so the first thing that we see here, we do see some clues about when this happened, the first year of King Belshazzar. And so we have to go back. We saw this a few chapters ago, right? We saw Belshazzar come come up. Probably during this time, Daniel is in his mid-60s. And so it's not like chapter chapter six finishes and then it's a progression into chapter seven. We have chapters one through six narrative. Chapter seven, they kind of scooch back a little bit. And so while some of the narrative is happening, Daniel is having these dreams. And so this is the first year of Belshazzar. Daniel was in his mid-60s. This is probably the year 553 BC, and Belshazzar would be in his mid-30s. We see here that, that the monsters show up. Kids, when do monsters show up? At nighttime. That's what I'm talking about, King. All right, you get an extra snack this afternoon, bro. 
They show up at nighttime. The other thing that's interesting here is that for the whole first half of the book, the kings, the rulers have had dreams and Daniel is the interpreter. Here, Daniel is having the one, is the one who's having a dream and he requires an interpreter. So he writes these things down. We'll see later that he needs an interpreter, probably Gabriel for these things. Verse number two, Daniel declared, I saw my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Again, we have these metaphors. Remember, simile, we have this figurative language. So here he uses a couple of these and we see this all throughout the Old Testament. But when he uses this phrase, wind of heaven, what he's saying is this is God's doing. God is the one who is breathing down onto earth. This is God making this happen. Nothing surprises God. Nothing does. So from the very onset, he says, this is God's doing. He knew it was going to happen. The wind of heaven is here. The second thing we see is there's a great sea all throughout the Old Testament, this gray sea. And in the book of Revelation, it represents this raging chaos, confusion, and conflict within men and women and among us as well. So we have two perspectives, two powers at work here. One is the great wind of heaven. One is the sea. And this is the middle of our confusion. Isaiah 17, verse number 12 talks about this. Isaiah writes, ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. And then in Revelation chapter 17, and the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So we have this metaphorical figurative language here as Daniel dreams. So then we get to verse number three. And four great beasts, how many beasts? Four, that's right. Four great beasts came up out of the sea. So not from heaven, but they came up out of the sea. Different from one another. So we have these four beasts. Notice, friends, as Daniel, we'll get to the end of chapter seven next week. But when we get to the end of chapter seven, you'll see that Daniel, he's flush. He's scared. He's pale. His skin turns colors. This is not simply an academic exercise. For Daniel, and neither should it be for us. He doesn't say, let me give you all the details of what these beasts mean. He tells us these things to elicit a spiritual and an emotional response from us. These are meant to scare us. They're meant to bring us face to face with real monsters, with these real beasts. We should be able to see them and to smell them and to some degree, like Daniel, be overwhelmed by these beasts. So he says there are four beasts here and we'll see later in the book. We'll pick this up next week. But in verses 16 and 17, Daniel actually says that these beasts represent four nations. So each of these beasts is a different nation. We're used to this, right? Because even my neighbor, she has a, a fake eagle, like a concrete or something eagle in her backyard. I'm never thinking, man, what does that eagle, why does she just randomly pick an eagle? Well, we know that because the eagle represents America, right? Like we're used to animals representing nations. And the next time you have an election or you turn on CNN or Fox or anything in the middle, okay, wherever you are, MSNBC, you're gonna see it comes time for election. What do we have? We have two animals opposing each other. On one side, we have an elephant. See, some of y'all said donkey. Tells you where we are, okay? Take note who's voting for whom around you. So we have an elephant and we have a donkey on either side of you, all right? So we're used to these things. These animals represent things. So we're going to get into what they represent. The first one in verse number four, the first was like a lion. So this is a simile. So it's like a lion. Notice 
and had eagle's wings. Then I looked, uh, then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. This first one, this lion with the wings is the Babylonian empire. And even in Daniel's day, the, the winged lion represented the nation of Babylon. And they had these winged lions all throughout the city, usually made of gold. In fact, some of these winged lions, these statues from 2,500 years ago, you can still see them in France. Uh, there's one in Chicago. Like you can see them at different museums. That, that represented that. When it says here that his wings were plucked, if you go back to Daniel chapter 4, we see King Nebuchadnezzar, he goes and he loses his mind right? Because he rebelled against God. But then God comes in and gives him his mind back. So here Daniel is saying, hey, here's what's happened. This is the dream that I have. So this winged lion is the nation of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar is his head. Okay, simple enough. First nation. Second nation, verse number five. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and was told, arise, devour much flesh. Can I, can I say something in passing real quick? We don't know what the ribs mean, okay, first of all. Secondly, so I'm not gonna, we're not going to pontificate on that or speculate. But secondly, notice here the language. It doesn't say this nation brought itself to power. Here in the Hebrew, and we do this in English as well, but all of these, all of these verbs that are being used here, they're passive verbs. So it's God allowing these nations to rise up. It's the power of God to raise these nations up. They're not doing this in and of themselves. Nothing surprises God. He's in complete control. But we have here a bear. It's raised up on one side, which the nation that followed Babylon, we've already seen this in the book, was the nation of the Medes and the Persians. And so we have the Median Empire and the Persian Empire. Daniel always puts those together. But the Persian Empire was essentially um, bigger. The Persian Empire eventually dominates the, the Medes. And that's why the bear on one side is a little bigger. It's, it's this lumpy bear that's walking. That's the Medes and the Persians. The Persians eventually dominate. It's the bigger side of the bear. The third nation, and we can look at this historically. We've, we've seen this in the book of Daniel. We can go back and you can research this as well. The third animal in verse number six is a leopard with wings. Verse number six, after this, I looked and behold another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. Now think for a minute about a winged leopard. Fastest animal gets wings. <laughs> Pretty sick. So like if you, if you think you can outrun a leopard, you're really not gonna be able to outrun a leopard with wings, Okay. So you're like, oh man, I can just climb a tree, you know? And I'm gonna put, you know, like grease on the bottom so it can't climb up or whatever. Well, now it's got wings. Man, now you're shot. So this third nation is the Greek nation. So the Greeks, they overcame the Medes and the Persians or what was then the Persian nation. Uh, Alexander the Great is who led the Greeks into victory. Alexander the Great came into power when, uh, when he was 23 years old. That's pretty crazy. Within the first 10 years of his reign, he had conquered the entire known world, all the way from Egypt to India. He had conquered the entire world. 10 years, really fast. Leopard, really fast. So here he's saying, this is Alexander the Great. This is the Greeks. In fact, when Alexander the Great, when he got through conquering all the known world, it says that he went and he sat and he wept because there was nothing else to conquer. 
He said, man, this is terrible. But then when Alexander the Great died in 323 BC, we see that he didn't have any heir. And so his nation was divided into four parts. Well, what do we have right here at the very end of verse number seven? It was divided into four parts. So we, we have, uh, yeah, this fourth, uh, sorry, at the end of verse number six, the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. So we have here, uh, Greece is divided. Now, when was Daniel written? 200 years before that, okay? So we've moved from Daniel looking back to now looking ahead. Verse, let's see, verse number seven. After this, I saw the night visions and behold a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful. What kind of beast is it? Terrifying and dreadful. We don't have a name for this beast. We don't know. It's just a beast, real scary stuff. Next week, he really focuses on this beast. We'll, we'll dig more into that, what that means. We have this fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that went before it. And it had 10 horns. So we have this beast with the horns. This is the Roman empire. It says here it had iron teeth. The Romans were known for using iron technology primarily in battle. They went through and they conquered. And this is the longest lasting empire that the world has ever seen. It lasted from this point until the middle of this last millennium. So it lasted for an incredibly long time. He says, it was terrifying. It represents power. How many of y'all, show of hands, have an animal living in your home, like under your roof? How many? Animals, yeah. How many of y'all have an animal living in your home that has horns on it? Okay, because... <laughs> what kind of animal is that? Are y'all lying to me in the house of the Lord? <laughs> and y'all lied simultaneously. We'll talk about that later. That'll be chapter eight. I'll let Caleb deal with that. Uh, so the reason you don't have a horned animal living in your home is because you don't want competition. You want companionship. These are meant to terrify you. Horned animals living in your home, bad idea. Okay? Weird. Not good, okay? So these horned animals are supposed to scare you. Let's look at verse number eight. I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn, this small one, were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. This is a human with supernatural power. Theologians say this is the first time that the Antichrist is mentioned in all of the scriptures. So we would say this is probably the Antichrist here who is mentioned as this small horn. He speaks great and terrible things. Now, the word Antichrist comes from uh, two different parts of that word, obviously. We have the prefix, which is anti. It means either against of or a replacement for. So it's not simply against, against Christ, but it's against Christ or a replacement for Christ. So when we think antichrist, and we'll dig way more into this this next week. So wait till after next Sunday to start shooting me text about what stuff means. Um, but antichrist, he's saying there is a counterfeit Jesus, a counterfeit king, a counterfeit kingdom, a counterfeit economy, a counterfeit army, a counterfeit religion. That's that small horn that's popping up right there is this antichrist at the end of the ages, okay? Now, everybody take a deep breath. Whew. So we made it through these first eight verses. Everybody good? 
Okay, I've only got four and a half minutes left. So I'm gonna talk real fast because I smelled most of y'all's soups and chilies this morning and yeah, I'm hungry. So verse number nine, look at verses nine and 10. Here we're gonna enter into this courtroom where there is a judge who is bringing down verdicts against evildoers. Verse number nine, as I looked, so things shift slightly, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. The ancient of days is God the father. Okay, we see that from other spots in scripture, ancient of days, God the father. Notice his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. So God comes rolling in, ancient of days, on a flame-throwing Segway. Like, this is awesome. I was thinking about this when I thought about, like, a visual for this. I was like, this is like Mario Kart. You know, we were playing Mario Kart last night, and you can throw, you know, tortoise shells, and you can throw fire and all this. But I'm like, yeah, this is Jesus showing up. Dan's got to be thinking, what in the world? This is as close as he can get, is Mario Kart, okay? So the Ancient of Days show up, verse 10, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and then a thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 and stood before him, the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. So this throne, if we go back and look, the throne represents dominion and power and authority. The ancient of days, God the Father comes and sits on. We have here this picture of him being holy and perfect. His clothing was white as snow. Everything is perfectly white. And the fire here, all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, represents either purification or judgment. Here it represents judgment. He is coming to judge all of these beasts, all of these nations, the spirit of Babylon, the spirit of the Antichrist that we've just seen in these first eight verses. So God shows up. We see his authority. Notice he uses this, this number 10,000 times. Why can't he just say like uh, 10 billion or what? Like, come on, Daniel, do the math. Like you can interpret dreams and you can't do the math. Like, and these are whole round. Here's the thing. Um, in Hebrew and Aramaic, the highest number they had was 10,000. So he's saying, it'd be like us saying there was a Google or an infinity number of folks around the throne. Like it was an incalculable, incalculable amount of those who are around the throne who stood before him and the, cat, and the court sat in judgment and the books were open. So here he's opening the book saying, here's who's right, here's who's wrong. Verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn, the Antichrist, was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. It is judged. Verse 12, as for the rest of the beasts, those first three, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And so those nations, they rose and came to power. Some of them were in power for a number of decades, some for a number of centuries, but because of the provision, the sovereignty of God, they were allowed to rule. Here's what we see in verses 11 and 12, friends, is that even with this succession of evil nations, those nations are not going to succeed in bringing down the throne of the ancient of days. Daniel here is saying, during this time, it may be difficult. We may have long days and weeks and years and decades ahead of us. Even the end of the exile that they were experiencing now, at the end of that is not eternal salvation. There may be a long time before Jesus is going to show back up. But in the middle of that, righteousness is going to win. Salvation is going to happen. So take heart. Hang in there. 
Jesus in the end is going to win. Then we get to verses 13 and 14. Two of the most important verses really in the Bible, theologians would say, especially in the Old Testament. Look at verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. The son of man is Jesus Christ, okay? And he came to the ancient of days to the father and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. We see the son of man. This is the perfect ideal individual who is 100% God, 100% man once he came to be incarnate. This is the way that we were supposed to live. It's perfectly, as the son of man, we were not designed to be living in sin. And so he's saying, yeah, he's the son of man. He can identify with us, but he is perfect. We were supposed to be able to identify with him. Notice where the beasts come. We talked about beginning from, from the winds of heaven and this great sea. Where do all the beasts come from? The sea, the chaos, the confusion of man. Where does the son of man come from? He comes from the clouds. If you've ever ridden first class, you look out, uh, you look out your window and you see these clouds, which first class is awesome. Anybody ever ridden first class? Yeah, I usually don't, uh, but back in the day, uh, we used to fly with uh, these sick buddy passes. We had some folks, I think they, like, uh, I don't know, maybe it was um, Orville Redenbachers or Wright or whatever his name was. He invented the airplane. Anyway, we used these buddy passes and uh, we, could, we could, man, just step on and we'd ride first class a decent bit. Like, it was awesome. And uh, I remember sitting in first class, you know, they're bringing you drinks, which at the time was like a cherry cohook or something, you know, because I was 16. And, but it was just great, great ride, more leg room, especially for somebody like me, you know, who's built like an orangutan. And so it was just amazing. Um, so, but imagine looking out the window, you're sitting in first class, man, this, this is great. You look out the window at the clouds and Jesus is riding on those. You think first class on an airplane is awesome? You look out the window, Jesus is riding on the clouds. That's first class. That's sick. So Jesus comes riding in. The son of man comes to the ancient of days and he's presented 81 times. Everybody say 81. 81 times in the gospel, this term son of man is used for Jesus. And every single time it's used to convey the power and the authority that Jesus has over all of creation, over both realms, the seen realm and the unseen realm. We actually see this in Mark chapter 10. I have these up on the screen for you. Mark chapter 10, it says this in verse 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That combined with Isaiah 53, notice this, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom mid hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That's Jesus Christ, the son of man. Later, Matthew, uh, sorry, Mark chapter 14, he says, and Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man 
seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So we have here Jesus Christ, the son of man who came to be sacrificed, but who is going to rule and reign forever. In fact, Jesus often quotes Psalm chapter 110, which talks about the son of man having authority. Here's just verse number one. The Lord said to my Lord, in other words, the father saying to Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the son of man here is Jesus Christ coming to rule and to reign. When did Jesus Christ receive all authority, glory, and power while he was on this earth? During his ascension. During his, he's raised back to life from the dead. So Jesus lived perfectly, completing, fulfilling all of the Old Testament law. Down to every single uh, dot, every single little tiny minuscule part of the law. He obeyed everything perfectly. And even at the end of his life, he was placed onto a cruel cross made by those who were in this sea of confusion and chaos by the son of men. He's placed onto a cross. He takes the wrath of the father on himself. He dies a cruel death. After living this life that we were designed to live, he came down to live for us. He then says, I'm gonna die the death that you deserve to die for you. And then he's raised back to life. As soon as he comes back to life, he walks around the earth for about 40 days. And then he ascends up into heaven. At that point, receiving all glory and honor and power. In fact, if we look, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, they say this. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which God had directed them. And when they saw him, talking about Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority has been given to me as the son of man, the righteous, perfect son of man. Here's the great commission. Go, therefore, because of my authority, because of my rule, because of my kingdom, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then Jesus Christ ascended and he went to be seated at the right hand of God the Father, where today he is making intercession for us, where one day every single knee is going to bow to his authority, to his power. Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 9 through 11. He says, therefore God has, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of, I'll say it together, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friend, the mission has not changed. In the face of beasts, in the face of these nations that are raging against the glory and the preeminence of Jesus Christ, in the face of all of those, the kingdom of God rules and reigns supreme. Our mission has not changed. He sends us out to spread the good news of his kingdom so that the world will be filled with worshipers. That's what I want us to see from Daniel chapter seven. That's what we see here in the book of Matthew. That's why we study the word of God. 
is so that we can know more about Christ and so that we can be compelled and sent out to a world that needs to, be, to know more about him. I told you I'd tell you three things at the end. The first one is this. When you die, you will be judged by Jesus. When you die, you don't get an option. You don't uh, have a preference of here are the two places. You know what? I think I'll take heaven. It smells a little less smoky. You know, we're gonna go there. God's not gonna weigh your good versus your bad and oh, we got more. No. You either have faith in Jesus Christ and him alone or you don't. And if you have faith in Christ and him alone, he has been judged by you on the cross. If you do not have faith in your hope and your identity and your security in him and him alone, then you will be judged and eternally separated from God. Secondly, most of our Bible application, I'll say much of our Bible application is actually tips and trips, tips and tricks for better living, not becoming divine worshipers. Oftentimes we go to the Bible, hey, what does this say about how I can live? How can I make my life easier? Rather than saying my ultimate purpose on earth is just like we see right here, to gather around the throne of God and to worship him, the ancient of days, the son of man for all time. Go therefore and make disciples, make worshipers. It echoes of the garden. Go and multiply, be fruitful and multiply. Have kids, have more and more worshipers of me. Take my image and spread it to the ends of the earth rather than how can you live your best life now? How can my life be a little bit easier this week? How can I make sense of some of these confusing things? In the same way that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of all of human history, our relationship with him should be the center of our identity. Because we can look at human history and figure out what, is the, what are the themes, what's the center of it? Jesus Christ's resurrection is smack dab in the middle of human history. The reason that we exist, the reason that we can gather this morning, may that be the center of who you are. Thirdly and lastly, the God who rules over the world is coming to rule in the world. The God who rules over the world is coming to rule in the world. We know how this story ends. We know how it ends. We have the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A hope that is unfading, that is not tarnished. It is perfect because our hope is Christ in him alone. My, my prayer for us is that it would transform our lives individually. It would transform our families, our homes, that it would continue to transform this church. Like Jason said earlier, that's why we exist. That's our mission is for the sake of being transformed into the image and likeness and kingdom of God. But that's our mission to those around us also. May we be going therefore because of what Christ has done and making disciples, teaching them, telling them, proclaiming to them the good news in the midst of nations that are raging, in the midst of confusion. And when things, when things seem darkest and most desolate, we have a hope that is secure. His name is Jesus Christ. And I would plead with you this morning, if you have never put your faith and trust in him, cry out to him this morning. Fall upon his mercy. Those who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be saved. Believe in him. For those of us who are part of his family, who are part of a local church, 
who are in good standing with those churches, we get to celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ came the first time to be broken for us. We take this bread and we dip it in the juice and we're reminded that the body of Christ was broken, not only for all of us, but it was broken for you. The blood of Christ, which represents his righteousness, covers us. It was poured out for you. He came the first time to be broken on our behalf. But when Jesus Christ comes again, he's coming to rule and to reign with a sword. We get to rejoice in that. We don't have to be scared about that. We should be scared by sin and by these beasts and by the kingdoms of this world. My prayer is that we would see the beauty of heaven and the beauty of Jesus even today, because if you don't see it today, you will be crushed by it later. So may we celebrate, may we remember the sacrifice of Jesus. May we rejoice in his finished work together. Friends, I would invite you to this table. And as we do, may we be repenting of the things of this world. Repent of your selfishness, of your pride, of your self-righteousness, of your lust, your greed. Now we already had time of confession, yeah. Ask the spirit now to reveal those areas and lay those before the Lord. And let's be reminded that we are forgiven because of Jesus Christ. His body, his blood is represented here. We get to experience his presence. We get to experience his love, his glory. Let's do that even now as we celebrate communion.